Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. It's a little bit early in the regular season to get into the, like the big picture analysis. You can listen to the day by day, game by game stuff with Nate Duncan on Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. So I wanted to go in a different direction with a focus on the 2024 draft with the great Sam Pacini, college basketball draft writer for The Athletic, host of the wonderful Game Theory podcast. And we, we talk about a lot of that, but we also discuss some of the young guys that are currently in the league, how to assess and deal with positions. We have a really interesting discussion about halfway through the pod on that. And the episode is brought to you by FanDuel. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet at fanduel.com slash Boston. Podcast runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, what's going on, man? It's uh, it's good to come on. It's good to get the draft muscles working again because I feel like simultaneously I have done more prep for this draft than I ever have before because my database of like prospects is now just bigger and wider than it's ever been, right? And I also feel like I've done less prep for this draft than ever before because this draft has so many potential outcomes uh, that I just don't even know where to start. Yeah, it really does seem like a fascinating group. And in part because I'm self-interested, I actually want to start with something that isn't rigidly 2024 related. And that is um, AJ DeBansa, who I've heard very good things about, one of the better non-draft eligible players in American high school basketball. He reclassified, so it looks like he will be a member of the 2025 class. For people who are NBA-focused, how big a deal is that? Yeah, it's definitely a big deal. So he is he going to be 2025 or 26? I can't. I get confused because of whether they're talking about whether they're talking about high school graduation or college graduation. Yeah, so um, he, he's reclassed to the high school class of 2025. Five. So then he would be, be NBA 26, assuming they don't change the age limit. Right. So that's going to be like the Cam Boozer draft, the Darren Peterson draft. That's expected at this point to be like the next big NBA draft. This 2024 draft is not seen as strong at all at the top. And we'll talk through that as we go through this process. The 2025 draft has Cooper Flag, which has people really, really excited. Because in my opinion, at least, Cooper Flag is the best high school player uh, on the planet. Like he's the best of that age group right now that I have seen. So when you have somebody like that, there's obviously going to be a lot of excitement. There's going to be a lot of things that people are pumped to look at at the top of the draft. And there are going to be a lot of NBA teams that might try and get to the top of that draft. But once you get beyond Cooper, there actually aren't a crazy number of super high upside prospects in that group either. Mm. So the next two cycles are seen to be a bit down. And then when we get to 2026, there is a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement in large part because of guys like AJ Vance. So let's talk briefly. I mean, we're not going to really get into flat for about a year but do you want to give people like the the short summary i've heard about him he's somebody who's played some some team usa stuff of course at the younger levels he's not on the senior team usa um on on what makes him what makes him different what makes him special he's probably the most complete prospect at at 15 years old he was probably the most complete prospect i'd evaluated for that age specifically uh he continues to get better i'm I'm not going to sit here and say he's not getting better uh he absolutely is but he has been incredible at basketball basically from the time that he was 15 onward you can go back you can watch like his u17 world cup stuff you can go back and watch anything that he's done on the aau circuit 
his anticipation defensively is unlike anything I've seen. Like he is a Andre Kirilenko kind of like world breaker on that end in help. And then on top of it, what he's developed over the course of the last year, as I go like full Italian, as you can see me on the camera, <laughs> uh, what he's developed over the course of the last year is the ability to create shots. Like he is really coming together in terms of that uh, deceleration, that stop start ability, the ha- the handle, the ability to get to his spots in the mid range, the ability to pull up from three. He is going to be really, 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 really ridiculously good in my opinion uh, as we continue to move forward here. And from what I recall, Cooper fly, he's forward sized, correct? Yeah. He's like six, eight, six, nine, like in that range. Uh, um, and he's like, he's a prospect from Maine. Like mm-hmm. how, how many times do you get prospects from Maine? Right. It's just a crazy story. That, and he's like stayed mostly like true to Maine. Like he's down, he went down to Montverde to play high school basketball, but like he plays with like a Maine AAU team because I, I would venture like he kind of wants to help his boys like get scholarships, right. <laughs> and get eyeballs on them so that they get an opportunity uh, that he has had to potentially go to Duke or North Carolina or Duke or uh, Connecticut. I'm sorry. Uh, it seems like it's going to be one of those two. And I think he's announcing at some point soon. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like it, it's coming to a head with his recruitment where there's going to be some sort of announcement there. That's exciting. And to, to have, I, I always do, love and it's funny because it's coming on you mentioned you've invoked boozer and carlos boozer came from an unusual place he's one of the few alaskan nba players there are others but he's one of the few and so with shout out trajan langdon baby yeah and Chalmers too potentially. I I think so yeah um and so that's always very exciting and we can turn our focus to the 2024 class, and this is something you and I have, have discussed mostly offline over the last little bit, and obviously we're still very, very early on. Like there, These players still have basically their whole college year, for some of them their whole college career, depending on, on who we're talking about. And I want to start with just kind of the million, the million mile view. You and I often try to split this. I can't remember which one of us initiated this into kind of star starters rotation players. And so the idea behind it is any draft class is strong or weak in those elements. And it leads to sometimes it leads to conflation of like, this is a strong class, but maybe it's strong in one of those elements or two of those elements and weak in another. So knowing what you know right now, putting in all the caveats that we can put in, how does this class look in terms of stars, starters and rotation players? So, as we talk about this, I kind of want to contextualize it a little bit. The, the the last time we've seen, the last two times we've seen drafts that are this week, right, are 2020 and 2013. And I think it's worth contextualizing what a week draft is, first and mm-hmm. foremost. In any draft, there are going to be players that come out of nowhere and become like all NBA players. Maybe not even out of nowhere, but they, they come out of... Uh, not obscurity, but misevaluation in some way, or they develop into all NBA, all star level players, right? In 2013, the prime examples there are Giannis and Rudy Gobert. Uh, Giannis goes 15. I think Rudy went 27. Like you look at that draft, it has like a pretty normal amount of all NBA players. It does not have a normal amount of star players, starters, anything like that. That was a weak draft at the time that went on to be a weak draft. The 2020 draft, and by the way, the 2013 draft, a big part of that is you remember who went at the top of that draft. That was uh, off of memory, Anthony Bennett, then Victor, Victor Oladipo, Oladipo. Um, 
Somebody in the Noel went six. Alex Len went five. Uh, Cody Zeller went four. Who went three? Why is my brain breaking? It wasn't Derek Williams. That was a different draft. No, that was with Kyrie uh, in 2011. Uh, but like, you look through that draft, basically, in the top seven or eight, other than Vic for that one year uh, in Indiana, it was a particularly weak draft at the top because there just wasn't a lot of certainty about mm-hmm. what guys are going to be good and what guys are not going to be good. And we knew that at the time. The 2020 draft, we felt good about LaMelo Ball. James Wiseman, Anthony Edwards, right? Those were the three guys at the top that teams felt strongly about. Now, James Wiseman lost too many reps when he was younger, despite the fact that he has all the physical tools in the world. It's just seemingly at least, you know, hopefully it does, but seemingly it's not going to work out for James, especially given the fact that he was out of Detroit's rotation to start the season last night. Having said that, LaMelo and Anthony Edwards have turned into great basketball players that I think both are at some point probably going to make an all NBA team. Uh, LaMelo, maybe there are a little bit more, a few more questions about that, but certainly Anthony Edwards, I think everybody would say is on that trajectory. Tyrese Halliburton, I feel quite strongly will make an all NBA team at some point as well. I was quite high on Tyrese. I had him at like six or seven, if I remember correctly, he ends up going 11 or 12. And then there also is Desmond Bain and Tyrese Halliburton. I would say those are like the two other guys that you can make like a fairly realistic case could be all-stars long-term. Uh, and Ty- uh, Tyrese Maxey, I think that's who you meant when you said Halbert the second time. Or did you? Uh, yeah, Maxey. I meant Maxey. Yeah. Um, Tyrese Maxey and Desmond Bain. I'll hear out an argument for Jaden McDaniels. I'll hear out an argument maybe for Devin Vassell. I think they probably slot in as like really high end starters. But if you're talking about a draft where there are really only, you know, maybe three all stars. Maybe like another potential all-star in there. If you combine like McDaniels and Vassell as like potential all-stars, right? I like Emmanuel quickly. I don't think he's going to be an all-star point guard necessarily. Uh, you know, just kind of looking through extension numbers here, right? Like mm-hmm. Sadiq Bay, Precious Achua, uh, Patrick Williams. You know, I, those guys are fine, but they're probably not making all-star games, right? That draft was seen at the time as a relatively weaker draft in terms of star power, and it bore out that way. If you go through historically, typically there are something like five and a half to six all-stars in a draft class. If I remember correctly over the course of the last like 13 years, that class is going to have three or four 2013 is going to have, I think it ended up with like three or four, right? So below average drafts 2024 now to shift forward into the original question that you asked about now that I get that preamble out of the way, I think is actually weaker at the top than 2020 was. And 2013 was the first year that I did this like semi-professionally. Like I'm not going to sit here and say like I was anywhere near as good as I am now at this, like back in 2013. I felt like at the time though, people at least believed like Victor Oladipo had a shot to be an all-star. Anthony Bennett, like the reason the Cavs drafted him is they thought that he had the highest chance to be an all-star. That didn't bear out well, but that was the theory, right? In the case of the 2024 draft, I can't really sit here and tell you right now that I feel like there are legitimate all-star caliber players in this class. I would say that basically everybody fills more into this starter mold that you tend to, that we tend to bucket guys in and that's okay. Uh, It's, you know, below average, but that's not crazy. But like Justin Edwards, Ron Holland, Alex Sar, Modest, Isaiah Collier, Tyrese Proctor, Donovan Klingon, 
I like those players. Again, I think they're all probably starters. I don't think I would project any of them is like all-star, all-NBA players at this point. And it's important to note, as, as you did, that there will be inevitably players that rise and fall relative to the expectation. But what we're doing yeah. is kind of an aggregate exercise. And it's the idea that that, that those those movements, while they might not be predictable, the, the idea of it being who it is, that that's like I used to do pieces at The Athletic for years of like the overall cap space in the league. And so the idea was like, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know if it's going to be Miami or Charlotte that uses that cap space but we kind of know what the amount that's working around and i think the overall talent in a class it it can shift and i mean we'll see where this year takes us but that is a a, a good little primer for where these where these things are i know it, that one to, go ahead to, to go to contextualize it a little bit further the 2022 draft with paulo chat jabari smith like that was seen as a draft that seemingly did not have like a crazy amount of star power uh, at the time. I didn't end up having any tier one prospects, which are like the all NBA guys, but I had all of Paulo Chachabari and I think Jade Ivy as well in my tier two, which is like, you know, real potential all-star value, right? I don't think I would really have anybody even in tier two right now in this class. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's concerning, but hopefully, you know, and, and not inevitably, but hopefully some people will, will change that. I think the place to start from the limited amount that I know about this class is with Kentucky. Kentucky has a very hyped, as as it exists within this world, group of, of incoming freshmen. Probably starts with Justin Edwards. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, in terms of draft prospects, for sure. Yeah. And so it's it's him, DJ Wagner, I believe, is also in the class. Bradshaw. Yep. Um, Aaron Bradshaw, yep. And then uh, Rob Dillingham just had like a absolutely killer game at their uh, like blue-white scrimmage. He dropped like 40. Uh, mm. So he's at least somebody worth tracking, I think. And so I, I guess we'll start with Edwards. He has seems like he has the best NBA pedigree. What is the kind of like elevator sales pitch for him for people who want to watch Kentucky this year? Just a solid, sturdy six foot eight wing. And those guys are not as easy to find as what people seem to say they are, right? Uh Justin Edwards is a pretty well-rounded guy. Like he isn't a great shooter yet, but he has you know, a solid enough building block to where I think he'll be a good shooter in time by NBA standards. Uh, You know, he's a solid defender. He's not like a game breaking defender, but he's a pretty good defender. He can dribble. He can create and transition. He can pass at a pretty high level. It's he has the foundation skills and building blocks of being good at and being like above average at a significant number of things in the NBA. And those guys are not easy to find. Those well-rounded wings tend to be worth their weight in gold in the NBA if you don't really take anything off the court. And that's where I like Justin. I think that he has potential to be a wing that maybe he's not like a game-breaking, like all-star NBA wing, but he doesn't really take anything off the court either. And that could be really valuable. Something you and I have discussed a lot over the years, and I think it's helped clarify my thinking, and I'm, I would guess yours as well, is the part of the value for these, let's call it six through eight to six foot 10 guys, is that even if they don't end up being a star, and even honestly, to a, to a lesser extent, if they don't end up being a starter, there is still a place that you need in the rotation. We could rattle off 10 NBA teams that desperately need one or two more yeah. capable players that size. And yes, the rookie scale is richer now than it was before, and it's a lot harder to pay this player in question 10 million or whatever it's going to be than it is to pay them two. But 
that is a real sales pitch. And I mean, as much as people lament the things that Jalen Brown doesn't do well, and you know, that that's fair considering how talented he is, you still ended up with a very good player that the Boston Celtics are incredibly happy to have and just gave a lucrative extension to. And I'm not saying I haven't I haven't seen Justin Edwards at all in person. And I mean, you can do a lot worse than Jalen Brown has, but the idea being the 30th best six foot eight guy is still going to have a really solid career in the league and be a player that teams will be happy to have. Well, so let's just go through the last couple of drafts in terms of like six foot eight guys with ball skills, right? Uh, Cade Cunningham is like six, six, I guess. So like, he's probably a little bit shorter, but Scotty Barnes in 2021 now, Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy, Jonathan Kaminga, Franz Wagner, Zaire Williams. Uh, let's see here. Corey Kispert, I think is like right around six, seven Trey Murphy, Jalen Johnson. Uh, that, those are your guys that are like in the six foot eight, six nine, maybe in Kaminga's case, six seven, but plays a little bit bigger uh, ballpark. The worst case scenario of those guys right now is probably Kaminga and Zaire Williams. And like, as you know, living in the Bay, Kaminga looks great right now in the preseason. I thought he looked really good in their first game. And then Zaire Williams is starting right now for Memphis, mm-hmm. and we'll see if that lasts. But th- that's basically like the worst case scenario for those guys in the 2021 draft. Well, and, then, and then you can compare them. And obviously, this is still too early to say anything definitive. But some of the guys who don't fit that description who were drafted, Jalen Green, still a work in progress. Jalen mm-hmm. Suggs, starting for the Magic, but, you know, his place is, can be a little bit tenuous. Davion Mitchell on the outs to some degree in Sacramento. You know, he's probably the third or fourth guard there in the rotation. Book Knight. Yeah, challenging place. Duarte has already changed teams once. Um, that was just like the season from hell for him. I'm not going to count Josh Primo because everything complicated that happened there. And then the other guy in the is Moses Moody, who I still really believe in, but is fighting, clawing for a spot in the Warriors rotation. Not that the Warriors are representative of the entire NBA, but it gives you an idea of, I, I love that you use that class. I hadn't really thought about them in this context of, well, if you have somebody who's this size, first of all, they can help you even when they're not, even if they end up not being the player that you hoped they were going to be. And sometimes they will be. Yep. I mean, Franz Wagner, I didn't like the film on him. I didn't like him in Summer League, and he's just a stud. Like, that's just like what's st- happening there. Stud. And yeah. he, he's phenomenal. And there have been people who are like, oh, you know, like he, he might not have that much room to roam. I disagree. I think that players who grow the way he has can continue to do so. And then, and, and just gives you so much more. And that isn't to say don't take six foot four guys. Don't draft Scoot Henderson over Brandon Miller or something like that. But the lens, the thresholds are meaningfully different. And one of the really interesting things, this doesn't connect as originally with the 2024 class, but you brought up James Wiseman earlier. And of course, there are, you know, bigs in the surrounding classes as well. Center only players are kind of getting into another, like, for me, a little bit of shaky territory because you and I have talked about this a lot over the years, but the thresholds are super high. And yeah. so, yes, if you can be Rudy Gobert, if you can be, I don't know, you could, well, you, you could you, try. You've got to have elite size. Like, Walker Kessler has elite size. You have uh, to have elite size and you have to have something else positive that goes with you. So now that can be like really good timing, that can be like strong touch on certain shots and everything else like that. Like, you don't have to be the rim protector though that is absolutely what i love yeah, like, like derek lively is an elite level athlete sure for being exactly seven foot one and right? and so but the idea that 
when you and I originally started talking about those kind of like bigger wing size dudes, one of the ideas of it was that you had more room for error. And I was always thinking of it relative to players that are smaller than them. Now I'm starting to think about it for players who are bigger than them too, who are single position single position defenders. Now, if you can play the four and the five or you're Victor Wembanyama and you can do whatever you want, yes, those rules don't apply. But it's it's more the idea of like, okay, if I were running a draft board, if I were doing what our, our, our buddy Mike Schmitz is doing now and this seven footer comes up, the seven foot one guy, I would be thinking about, well, are they, how confident am I that they're going to be in this like level of the top eight to 10 centers in the league that not only give you viable minutes throughout the regular season, but have a chance at least of being in your closing five. And worth noting that those closing five dynamics are shifting a lot when Jokic and Embiid are stars rather than the Rockets and Warriors of five years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that the key here is that the way that the NBA is developing and shifting right now, in my opinion, at least, and this is the thing that I have started talking about on my show, I feel like all the time and, you know, talked about a lot last night when I did a video on Victor Wembanyama for the YouTube channel. Like the biggest key that teams are looking for right now on defense is just ground coverage, right? Being able to cover as much ground as humanly possible because of how wide the court is right because of the level of shooting that is almost always on an nba court at this point you have to be able to cover 26 feet of space squared as opposed to having to cover 23 feet of feet squared previously right or 27 feet squared versus 24 feet squared and that increase is pretty enormous in terms of just actual space that you have to cover on the court it might not seem like it as we're talking but it's huge so what i think teams are looking for is just who gives us the best chance to cover the most ground on the court defensively sometimes that is going to be the seven foot one guy who can move his feet and who can do some things like a guy that i really like is zach collins because zach collins is seven foot tall he can move his feet at a pretty reasonable level he's not like an elite rim protector but he's pretty good and he's mobile and you can do a few different things with him and then on top of it like he has the offensive skill set like i think zach collins is gonna have like an awesome year next to victor Wembanyama. vic is obviously like the prototype of this in some level on some level right like he's seven four with an eight foot wingspan you watch him on the weak side right he just covers up the entire weak side with his arms evan mobley jaron jackson jr nick claxton another one who like is relatively limited offensively but covers so much ground because of how how athletic he is ground coverage is kind of the name of the game now and it's really really hard to do that with somebody who is like six foot five or under well let me rephrase it's hard to do that with multiple guys on the court that are six foot five six foot you know four six foot three and under you saw the way the lakers struggled last year when they played a lot of like Dennis Schroeder, you know, Russell Westbrook, Pat Bev minutes early on. And then what did they do? They supersized. Basically, they went out, they got bigger dudes like Jared Vanderbilt, Rui Achimura to come in and be able to cover that ground defensively. That's the key. That's the name of the game right now uh, in terms of the way that NBA defense is shifting. And to shift this to a draft conversation, which is ultimately where we're going. Those guys have real intrinsic value compared to guys that are six foot five and shorter Uh, because not only are you getting like the three extra inches of height, but you're probably also getting like 
three to six extra inches of wingspan as well, which is like damn near an extra foot of ground coverage. And on top of it, when you start accounting for like guys being in motion and guys being able to cover ground quicker, the longer you are, it's a big, big gap to cover. And you have to be... There's very little margin for error for those guys that are like six foot four or shorter now because you have to be able to have like super high levels of engagement, super high levels of anticipation, length, athleticism, all of it. Otherwise, it's going to be somewhat difficult for you. Like even so like we loved if I remember correctly, like you were really high on Devin Vassell defensive yes. at Florida State, right? Devin Vassell to this point in his career has been a below average defender, in mm-hmm. my opinion. He was good his first year. I think that the last two years have not been good enough, right? And, you know, even on the broadcast last night, I think it was Ryan Rocco who said that he He's gone to Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell and told them, you guys were our two worst defenders last year, right? And you guys need to pick it up. I think that like there's no better case for any of this than Devin Vassell going from like guy who was one of probably the five best perimeter defenders in college basketball his year that he uh, year that he left Florida State because he left as a sophomore versus what he is now, which a guy that has upside, I would say. Like he has room to grow defensively. I don't mean to say that like he has no chance to defend ever, but he's like a real question mark defensively now. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you can kind of tie that in. There are a number of interesting teams. The Hawks are pretty small in, in some of their iterations now. And and Trey has been a punching bag from a from a defensive perspective for a long time. But one of the other parts of this, and I want to get back into the draft shortly, but I love this conversation, is the idea that I have fully embraced now, which is that that you don't want your lead offensive creator guarding the other team's lead offensive creator. And not to say that all of these players are six foot two anymore. I mean, the best one in the league right now is seven feet tall. But the idea that you, let's say it's John Morant. John Morant, wonderful basketball player. But if you don't want John Morant defending the other team's point guard, or it could be, you know, like a six foot five dude or whatever, you never know, you never know in the specific situation. Well, then they're probably going to be guarding someone bigger because you generally don't have the luxury. A lot of the teams that that rely on a taller player there, one of the things you can do is just use a taller player for that other spot. And so it's harder to hide a smaller player. And you also can run into an issue. I, you know, at the end of the Warriors Suns game, I happen to have a really good angle on this. The Warriors had Clay Thompson guarding Josh Okogie. And so Okogie was, Clay was helping off of him. They were, even though Okogie had a better offensive game than he usually does. And Clay Thompson, not a small human being at all, but being the low man meant that he was the guy helping and he was helping on a Yusuf Nurkic drive. And Clay Thompson has many strengths. One of them is not really being a help defender. And so it's the idea of like, he's yeah. is like, okay, well, you there's just not as much you can do in those circumstances. Most people aren't well, Marcus Smart, Danny Green, who can be good as the low man, even if they have a smaller listed height. I'll give you an even better example of that. So Last night in the Dallas Spurs game, Victor Wembanyama comes back on the court with five fouls with like, what, five and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. The first thing they run is a set to get him a lob, right? And try and get him downhill toward the basket with Devin Vassell, right? They, uh, I forget who they inbounded the ball to, but Vassell ended up uh, like at the elbow and he came around the top of the key, took a dribble handoff and then took a screen from Vic and Vic rolled to the rim on the weak side. The Spurs drew up that play specifically to force Kyrie Irving into being the low man. Nice. In that action. They knew that they would come out with Kyrie on Chetty Osman because Chetty is 
the guy who can't really take advantage of Kyrie, right? In, in that circumstance. Like he can't really take advantage of taking him down on the block. Like if Chetty is taking the shot at that possession, you're winning. What teams are getting better at is for a long time, people thought about having short guys on the court almost only in on-ball switch scenarios in terms of mismatches. What teams are getting more creative with now is getting guys that are short in low man situations on the opposite side where they have to actually be the guy who's rotating in and trying to protect the rim because of the way that defenses are structured in drop scenarios right now. So it's really, really difficult, not only if you want to switch coverages, but it's also difficult if you want to play drop now to have multiple small guys on the court because there are multiple options with which teams can attack you in drop if you want to just put the smallest guy you know in the opposite corner which is where teams used to hide those guys you can't really do that anymore it is an absolutely fantastic point and something that we'll we'll keep an eye on over the course of the year and i was thinking back to that 3-2 zone that the miami heat ran or the 2-3 variant that they ran and so they would put the weakest defenders in the corners but they would have somebody behind them typically bam but not always bam in that spot and uh, those kinds of like counter wrinkles and everything else plenty more to discuss but first a message from FanDuel snap into action this season with FanDuel America's number one sportsbook right now new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet that is $200 in bonus bets win or lose if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston. Kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. I think I want to shift to the G League Ignite guys, and Ron Holland yeah. has definitely gotten some press there, but is is he your favorite? Or Because there's uh, Almanza as well, I think, that's interesting in terms of the potential, I don't know, igniters? Is that what we're going to call them? Sure, we'll go with that. Uh, Modest Bazelis, Almanza, uh, Oh Ron yeah, and Bazelis, that's right. Uh, Tyler Smith is somebody that I think might go in the first round as well. Uh, th- those are the guys that I'm really looking at. Terry Darlon as well, he's a guy we haven't really seen a lot of yet, just because uh, he was injured coming back uh, from the Basketball Africa League. No, he hurt himself at uh, Basketball Without Borders last year is what it was. Um, I think he broke his wrist, if I remember correctly. So he's just like kind of getting back now and we haven't seen a ton of him yet. But th- those are like the five guys that I'm really looking at with all due respect to London Johnson and Baba Karsane. Um, London has some interesting moments, but again, like a bit of a shorter guard. The the main guy here, to me, I would say, is Ron Holland. He is really fast and athletic and plays with an exceptionally high motor as much as anything. His issue is that like he was listed around like six foot eight in high school. But when you see him in person and when you saw him on the court against the uh, Perth Wildcats, he looked more like he was like six, six. 
Mm. And that is going to be an interesting thing for him to try and overcome. Let's go with. But he's athletic enough. He plays with a high enough motor. He's engaged defensively. I think he can be like a good defender in the NBA who covers a lot of ground. And uh, offensively, he's shown enough growth with his jump shot to where I am relatively op- optimistic that he'll be able to shoot at some point. So I-, I would say that he's probably the one with the Ignite that I'm most excited about. And it's interesting because this group of the Ignite players, they're mostly on the bigger side as well. We've been talking about this, whether that's what their skill set is or not. Um, but that, you know, what the, the through line really of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but but are, are, are Monza and Buz- and, and um, Matas, Buzelis, are they as mobile? Because like, I, I just I, I'm not as familiar with them, obviously, at this point. So Almanza is basically like a six foot nine, six foot ten big. But he that's what like I that's a, what I thought. I remember because he played he played overtime elite, right? He did, and he is like a hyper smart, intelligent, high IQ, skilled one. But he is not necessarily like super athletic. The jumper is not there yet. It's going to take some real growth. It's a bet on with Almanza. A, he's like the most decorated player uh, at youth level European competitions to come through in terms of like international competitions, not domestic and professional level competitions, club competitions. Uh, he's the most decorated guy in that respect since like Jonas to come mm. through. Like Jonas won like multiple MVPs. I think Almanza has won like three MVPs of those tournaments. Like he's just been like outrageous. At like the, the European like, championships and stuff. U16, U17, U19 World Cups and European championships. Uh, he, he has just been like absolutely outstanding across the board in every single setting he's been. The athleticism is like a real concern. Once he gets to the NBA, what can he do? The intelligence is there, but he needs to figure that piece of it out. Modis has all of the athletic tools. He's like 6'10", 6'11", maybe, with like real bounce. He's a real shooter, in my opinion. Like you look at his numbers from Sunrise, he was like a 40% three-point shooter. It's just that a lot of the feel stuff isn't quite there yet. And you watch him, you want him to be willing to like embrace that contact a little bit more, maybe. Like be willing to go into the trees, be willing to like take bumps and things like that. And he just doesn't do that yet. I think it's something that could come as he continues to grow and mature and get a little bit stronger and get a little bit uh, more capable of like absorbing that contact. But as of right now, that piece of his game isn't really there yet. And it makes him a lot more of like a perimeter player or like a back cut player who's like basically running the baseline or like 45 cutting. So again, like kind of a, there are limitations in terms of like his ball skills and in terms of uh, his driving, but 610 super athlete can shoot. There's a lot there. Yeah, there there definitely are some intriguing elements, and, and from what I remember, like decision making isn't like you know like like creating like good shots for other people has has not been part of Bazellus's like profile so far. Now that can yeah, ha- has hasn't really passed at all really throughout the course of his career. At, at first, when I was reading, I can't remember if it was your description or someone else's. I'm like, is he a six foot ten J.R. Smith? But the avoiding contact part of it is is maybe a little bit different. I mean, also J.R. Smith is a really fascinating player to theoretically roll the dice on again. I think, was he a little bit before your time as an analyst? Oh, JR. I mean, like yeah. the last piece of his career was, but like as a draft person, like absolutely. Like oh, I, yeah. I never scouted JR at 
What did he go to Oak Hill, right? Yeah, he did. I watched some of his high school stuff and I'm like, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then that led to all my problems, like figuring out Mario Hazonia, which led to me yeah. over, oh, kind of overstating it on the idea that like I could run it again. Um, but that could still be a really fun player. I want to actually, we'll talk a little bit about the young guys that are currently in the league, but I want to open it up kind of, so we've talked about the kind of the four guys that the last time you did rankings were there. The last kind of question on 24 for now, and of course we'll catch up over the course of the year. It's something I truly love doing out outside of those four. And eh, you can include them if you really want to, who do you think has the best chance of really breaking through into that second tier, that group that you were talking about where like you could see it as being an all-star. Like, who has the like the building blocks that if they add thing X is the most intriguing? Because it doesn't always have to be like a yeah. top two or three guy. It could be somebody further down. Yeah, to me it's Alex Sar. Uh well, it might be it might be Ron Holland. It might be Alex Sar. It, it, it's it, it's like one of Alex Sar, Justin Edwards, or Ron Holland, probably. Like those are the three guys I have right now at the top. Uh, we haven't talked at all about Sar yet. Sar is a seven foot one dude playing out here in Perth in Australia. And he was the best player on the court in that G League Ignite Perth series, in my opinion. Uh, I thought he was absolutely terrific in those two games and has carved out like a real role here with the Perth Wildcats, which if you go back through the history of these guys that come here to be NBL next stars, there isn't a ton of like team success or frankly, like a crazy amount of player success that tends to come through Perth as we talk right now is two and four. They have a game tonight where hopefully they'll win. Uh, I don't love the way that SAR is utilized all the time. They do like a lot of like hard hedging and like pulling him like 30 feet away from the basket and things like that. But it says a lot that he can kind of do that as well. Mm -hmm. Like he is a really mobile. We talk about ground coverage again. The guy that he reminds me kind of most of right now is like if you gave Nick Claxton like a little bit more of a jumper, I would mm. say. Um, I still have some concerns on Alex's jumper. He has like a it comes out of his hand kind of funky. He gets like this weird side spin on it. Uh, I think he has a little too much like offhand interaction that might be fixable like throughout the course of like the next year, realistically. But he very clearly has soft touch, but he covers so much ground. He is all over the place. He is everywhere defensively. And being seven foot one with real movement skills, being mobile, he moves like a wing at seven foot one with like a seven foot five wingspan and has like real defensive instinct. To me, that guy has a chance to go somewhere in the top three, I would say. Mm. And it's like a real question. Like, look, I had Nick Claxton, I think, in the top 20 of that class. I loved Nick. Like, I thought he was going to be like a real dude. Where do you think Nick Claxton would go like in a normal redraft? Like he would go somewhere in the lottery for sure, right? Oh, in the lottery for sure. And potentially in the top 10. I mean, based on the growth that he showed last year defensively, I'm like, what intrigues you with Claxton? And I, I love that as a comparison, not knowing Sar, is that the things that he does wrong right now are generally, I, I think of them as more correctable. I may be wrong on that, but I think of them as more correctable. You know, like Claxton famously missed, I think it was 11 free throws in, in one of those playoff games. Those sorts of things, like with enough work and enough motivation, you're, there's no guarantee that you're going to fix it. Not everybody is Michael Red and some of the, like the people who are like, oh, everyone has a jump shot. No, no, not true. But the instincts, the motor, those, those, and the physical tools are harder to harder to teach, harder to translate 
if you if you like the absence is more prevalent and like you know you can you can figure some of this stout stuff out offensively too i mean like if you can teach them how to set good screens and everything else like you can make a productive player even if they don't do the other stuff so yeah that's definitely intriguing yeah and sar has some work to go there like screening is still absolutely a concern like th- there are a number like of- every person who's 19 or younger who has basically ever come into the league <laughs> accurate other but, than like maybe like udoka azabuki like honestly i think like the european guys tend to be okay as screeners yeah, like the bigger true. body euro guys like i thought zubats was like a pretty good screener if i remember correctly. oh that's true he was yeah and i, I think uh, willie hernan gomez was too yeah willie was always pretty good i'm trying to think like some of the other guys i don't remember what like nurkic and Jokic were like because nurkic is a really good screener too i actually hadn't i don't think i ever saw much Jokic before he came into the league like, he was too far that was when i had gotten full bore nba and like i think he was just too far down the board he I, I i love to think that he would be one of those players i would have been obsessed with but i because i mean foreign born bigs were but i don't know usually those were more more frenchy french guys or capella was swiss but same kind of idea um yeah the, the, the french guys tend not to be great screeners coming in no they really really don't uh, so let's shift to something that I know you follow and write about well and talk about well on game theory. The young guys who are now in the league, you and I often do a draft focus um, yeah. for this. We were both high on the 2023 class, and it is far, far too early to fully evaluate them. But how are you feeling about those guys? Summer league, summer league's in the books, preseason's in the books. Very, very, very start of the season is in process. Yeah, I feel great about them. To be honest, uh, Victor is obviously like unbelievable and, you know, it's almost worth removing him from this conversation. Like he's going to be like a top 50 player in the league this year, I think, which is bonkers for a rookie, right? Like truly insane for a rookie to be that good. Uh, Just the level of impact he's going to have defensively, like in his minutes last night, they had like a 110 defensive rating against the Mavericks when the Mavericks are going to be up at like 119, 120 this year. I would imagine just because of how good that offense is, how good Luca is having Kyrie for a full year, et cetera. Um, it's almost like it, he he's going to be so good that it's like not worth discussing. I thought Scoot struggled a little bit last night. Then he mm-hmm. kind of turned it on the fourth quarter, obviously, and got some things together after that game was like a bit, you know, blown out. That was nice to see. I, I still think he's going to be absolutely outstanding. I thought Brandon Miller struggled in the first three quarters and then had that great spurt in the fourth quarter again. But that was in a game that was like close and the Hornets like actually really desperately needed somebody to like give a little spark. And I loved seeing Miller do that. The Thompsons, I thought both struggled. I actually watched both of their games. That was my early window. I wanted to watch Houston and Detroit. Uh, plus, I got the lucky benefit of seeing Orlando against Houston as well. Um, I loved what the Thompsons, I loved what Asore brought defensively, particularly, especially early on. But it's going to be a real process for them on offense. Like, it's going to take time. And I would just really want people to be patient with them because the shooting is not there. Nobody guards either of them uh, Mm -hmm. in spot up situations because you shouldn't yet. And there will probably be some turnovers that are a little bit maddening because they play a very wild, aggressive style of basketball that I don't even want to say they'll rein it in, but I think they'll get stronger on the ball. And I think that their processing will slow down. They're both like super high level, intelligent kids that they'll watch so much tape and figure it out. Maybe even by like the end of this year, but it's going to take a minute for them. I think, uh, I'm trying to think who who else do we have? We um somebody that surprised me and I'm a little bit pissed off because I saw two Metropolitan's 92 games 
in France last yeah. year to see Vic. And I saw, I looked back because I'm like, I don't remember Bilal Koulibaly at all. Like, I didn't remember him. And then I looked at the, I looked at the, found the box scores for those games. And he played a total of four minutes in the two games yeah. that I saw in person. So I'm like, oh, it, it makes sense. on early in the season. It makes sense yeah. that I didn't know who this guy was. He's interesting. Like, I, I, when I've seen a little bit of him, Koulibaly was a little bit below Nate and my radar when we were, we were doing film. And he, like, he's interesting in a couple different ways. Like, he kind of can find his spots a little bit and, like, defensively, still going to take some time to get all the way there. But, like, I, I see why the Wizards were interested in him at seven in a way that is really positive when you think about somebody who is both as raw as Koulibaly is and as kind of young and thin as he is. So you, yeah. ju- that, that the, like, the connective tissue is more there for him than some of the other guys. And, like, it, that is, that is definitely intriguing to me. Um, there were some nice Case and Wallace moments yesterday. I didn't watch a ton of yeah. Thunder Bulls, but like for for me, there's this other kind of element of where I'm the guys that I scouted. Like, I mean, it's not that I feel like I I'm 100 right on them, but it's like I'm not. I the the sample I'm building is already reasonably sized. But then for somebody like Case and Wallace, for somebody like Derek Lively, who I saw at the Hoop Summit a year ago, but didn't hadn't seen since then, it's like okay, I'm learning a lot more on them. And and there's a lot more going on. And generally speaking, part of what's been so fun about this class is with guys like that, like Keontae George and Summer League in the preseason, like generally what, what's been added to the sample has been positive in at least a couple of ways, not in every way, but we're talking about mostly guys that are in the fringes of the lottery in this class. And that's exciting when the top is the top. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Like Derek Lively was awesome last night. Derek he Lively was. was absolutely outstanding. I thought he kind of, I'm, I was a little bit surprised that he was as ready to come in and be like as good as he was because I thought he struggled a little bit in the preseason and I thought he struggled a little bit at Summer League. The Summer League struggles didn't surprise me as much because I think he is a player that generally can, uh, he'll look better with good players kind of player, right? Because he's just rim running. He needs the ball fed to him. And if you're playing with like Summer League level guards, it might be a bit of a struggle. But the, the preseason I thought was like hit or miss as well. I also didn't love him defensively last night for what it's worth. I thought he got finished over the top of a little bit more often and guys went through him a little bit more often than what I would like to see. So that's something that I'm going to be interested to watch as this year progresses, but they kind of have to start him, I think just because that rebounding rim running threat is so real that he just gives them something like way more than what like Dwight Powell and maybe not Maxi, but certainly Derek Jones is going to give them. Well, and, and the thing that I considered early on, like one of the, my favorite elements of Lively's game in the opener was that offensively, he was both in areas that surprised me and areas where it was good to be. The type of thing that you don't generally <laughs> see a teenager, I don't know if he's 19 or 20, but you see it, you don't usually see a teenager there. And it reminded me of, I was very impressed with Lively in the scrimmages more so than the drills at the Hoop Summit, where it's like, oh, he kind of needed that environment to like engage him, to engage him a little bit. And I, and that, you know, like you could think of that as like a gamer or however, whatever term you want to use, but that is a good sign. And like the, the idea that struck me immediately with some of those Luca and Kyrie passes was he's offensively what they wanted JaVale to be last year. And Derek Lively is imperfect defensively. And you know, who else is imperfect defensively is JaVale. But if you're yeah. again another roll of those dice with a 19 year old who has talent who played with real motor, like I don't think he's going to be that you know the next great center defender based on what I've seen, but he'll get a lot better. And getting a lot better 
And and like there's this crazy thing with the Mavericks um, where they just due to a variety of different factors, they have so much pressure on the even the rotation guys, young or old, but especially young because their window is tight. And because they don't yeah. have that many other ways to improve. And so they're going to need Derek Lively. They're going to need ideally one of J- Hardy and Omax Prosper to have a really nice year. Because otherwise, like I worry that they could run into something that happened last year to the Clippers. As much as I love a lot of like Moxie Kleba and some of the some of the other guys is you can't necessarily not even expect those guys to improve. Like Kleba's older than some people think. I think he's 30 now. But also yeah. they when the when the floor drops out it can drop out fast and dallas just doesn't have outs and so they need in order for them to be a relevant team they really need all of those things to work out and they need some guys like hardaway jr to steady that you know to have a steady role and everything else like that but hardy prosper lively i think they're going to be really key to this season yeah i mean the guy that was awesome last night i thought was grant williams like oh, grant williams, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what his you know point totals were or anything i know he made a couple of threes like oh i think he made like i think he made four three-pointers like he too it was like four of eight and they were all like wide open and it was there was also a tactical mistake that i think san antonio made which was this i i i use the term threat assessment a lot which is basically just okay what are we taking away what are we giving up yeah. and grant grant williams very low usage during his time in boston some of that is also who he was playing with, but also some of that is Grant Williams' game. But if you're going to give him a set shot and time from the corner, he's going to make them. Like, that is something that Grant yeah. Williams has established over his career. And so there were times where San Antonio was, like, chasing Luca or Kyrie all around, often sending a second a second set of eyeballs or whatever. And that pass, those guys are going to see it, and they're going to make it, and then Grant Williams is going to get a good shot. Yeah. And so there are certain points, and this was driving me a little bit crazy at times in the Hornets Hawks game as well. I don't know if you watched that, which is yeah, if if you're guarding if you're guarding somebody who's not going to take or make that shot, you know, like he had a good game, but like that's the Isaac Okoro problem for the for the Cavs last year. That's a different scenario or what was why the criticism with that Hawks game, the Hawks were putting two on the ball against the Hornets, which was leaving Brandon Miller leaving PJ Washington with advantages, and the Hornets didn't really have anybody who was so good on ball that you needed to do that. And so, yeah, sometimes you can you can get away with that or you can make it work, you can you can get the other team in flux but against dallas i don't want to do that i think that dallas conceding those passes to Kyrie and especially to luca they're just going to relish it and grant williams is going to hit those shots yeah i think so too part of it was like san antonio felt like a lot of times they got hit on offensive rebounds like there was the play in the mm. first quarter where like victor like went and doubled luca on the block which like i think you should send a double to luca on the block almost like universally because he's so fucking good uh it's scoring in those circumstances but you have to do it when it's the guy coming off of Derek Jones versus uh Tim Hardaway Jr which is what Victor Victor you know doubled at first which was smart and then he went back to Tim Hardaway and then he like doubled again when he saw Zach Collins wasn't coming from the weak side double and those are things where like look scramble situations off of offensive rebounds like they're a little bit difficult right but those are like the things that San Antonio is gonna have to tighten up a little bit uh yeah I thought Grant was like outstanding last night for Dallas and you're 100 right Maxi turns 32 this year even he's yeah he's like way older than people think because he's got here a little bit later which is great like you know shout out to maxi for working his way into being an nba player i've always been like a huge fan same um 
And I think Maxi will be like an enormous help. Like they need Maxi to stay healthy. They need Grant Williams to be like a real dude. And as long as those two things happen, I think it lets the rookies come along a little bit more slowly. Uh, I think Derek Lively has like super high defensive upside and like potential. Uh, what I really like about Derek is I think you can play him in a few different coverages. You can play him more at the level of the screen defensively. You can certainly play him in drop, which I would imagine is where like a lion's share of his plays will come throughout the course of his career. Yeah, I, I love what the Mavericks did this offseason because it was all built around, okay, we have Luka and Kyrie. We need to find a way to insulate them. We think that Luka and Kyrie are going to give us enough offense to be like a 118 offense at least. Let's go find shooters in defense and rim runners to be able to play with them. And Grant Williams, I thought, was literally the perfect addition for them. Like they don't need any usage. They need corner three-point shooting and great defense. And Grant will do that. Um, I, I love, you know, bringing Maxi back. I thought that was smart. Uh, I know he was under contract, but, you know, obviously they could have, you know, Maxi is a deal that they could have made moves around. Tim Hardaway Jr. is a deal that they can make moves around. Like there are a number of different things that they can do. But I just really, really like what Dallas, I like what Dallas has built while also recognizing that there is some real like cratering potential this year. If Grant Williams goes down, for instance, just because they will then be very reliant on a lot of young guys on a team that is like ostensibly trying to get to at least the second round of the playoffs, let's say, right? Let's call it the second. Yeah, that's fair. Right. Um, so if, if they don't do that, I think this is, I don't know. Like if you ask Mavs fans, like what a disappointment is for them this year, I don't really know what that would be. Well, they I'm, certainly I'm more interested playoffs, in what Luca like, sees as a disappointment this year. Um, yeah, that's I, a great question. Yeah. And and I don't know. I mean, there there is this challenge and the, I, I don't think of the Mavs the same way that I think of like that Hawks team that made the conference finals where making it a little early, that can shift expectations. And it really, the NBA, the decision-making apparatus is really only a few people at a given moment in time who are really movers. And it doesn't matter whether they're rational or not to a certain extent, it just matters how they feel. And that's going to be something to watch. The last thing I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that you watched Rockets Ma- Magic, which was a fascinating game in the portions that I saw. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out not only Jabari Smith in general, but like where he fits in on the Rockets. Like, I I think that there is a good, potentially great player in there, but what that role is offensively, defensively is still in flux. And then there's the question of, is that role possible on Houston given their surrounding talent? Yeah, I think that's all a great point. It's worth noting that Jabari is still like extremely young. Like Mm -hmm. he is, if I remember correctly, like he is still 20 years old. And like just recently turned 20, like I think he might be younger than a men Thompson even uh, if he's not like it's very close. Uh, yeah, he's I just looked it up. He's four months younger than a men Thompson. So like all conversations about Jabari, I think, should be at least somewhat focused around how young he was entering the league. It's hard because I don't know if you can run anything for him yet in terms of like specifically running him off of like off screens and doing things like that. You can run plays where your goal is, Hey, let's get him a spot up. Look in the corner, right? Like you can maybe run like a drift, like a drift action, a hammer action, something like that. And he can get his feet set and knock down shots. I also think that they could probably run some things for him in the high post and try and like get him looks that way where he can shoot over the top of the guys that he's guarding, maybe get a switch on him and then get him the ball in the high post. But your point here is not wrong. And the big piece of it for Jabari now is going to come on defense. Right. And I, I don't know how you feel about him. I, I felt like he was pretty okay early on for a rookie last year. And then I felt like it kind of tailed off 
a little bit near the end. And I haven't seen like a crazy amount of growth there yet in the preseason. I'm a psycho that watched all of the Rockets preseason games because I was curious about what Yudoka was doing and how he was going to play this group of players. And I really like Cam Whitmore and Jabari and Amen and all these guys on this team, Shangun certainly. So I wanted to learn more about it. And I don't know if I've seen yet what Jabari's role is going to be defensively. I thought it would be more of like that help side defender on the back line who is able to like kind of move around and have good anticipation and block a shots. A little more like what Jaron has done? Kind of, but not as good as Jaron. Well, yeah, because Jaron, is, is, Jaron was ridiculous at that at Michigan State. Yeah, never had that instinct necessarily, but similar-ish role, right? Like he's athletic enough to do that. He has the length to do that. But I, I just don't know if we're, it's early. He's still very young. Again, everything has to be couched like that. But I just don't. I don't know if it's there yet. And if the defense isn't there, then you have like a questionable defender next to Alper and Shengun, who I think is going to look better defensively this year based on what I saw in the preseason. I wouldn't call him an above average defender by any stretch of the imagination. He will make action plays happen and people will see blocks and steals and they will think, oh, wow, that's great. People need to remember that is probably going to be three to 5% of the defensive possessions that Shingun plays when he gets those steals and, and blocks. And it, it's just, it's a little bit hard. I think right now to try and focus in on what their, what their long-term long-term front court looks like defensively. Cause I'm sure that their hope is that those two guys can be the guys. It is. And Houston, like they have time to figure this out, but they like the fits of all these pieces. And, and like the nice thing about a 48 minute game is that you don't have to do the same thing all the time. And you can experiment with Jabari Smith at the five. You can experiment with him next to a variety of different players. And Amen is such an unusual player, such an unusual fit that they're going to have to do a lot of maneuvering with him. And what there's this idea, it happens like, you know, once or twice, it happens with one or two teams at any given point in time where either like I mean, I've invoked the Clippers before if like all their support players got old at the same time last year and maybe some of them get a little rejuvenated this year the other is like there are one or two teams where like their young guys just aren't quite as good as we hoped all at the same time and I don't I'm not yep. saying the Rockets are there because a that is a temporary condition if it ever exists but like I've you know I'm I was a little higher on Jalen Green than I am now I was a little higher on Jabari than I am now and Maybe some of that is the fit and they play too many young guys and if you want to blame Silas for part of that and just everything else. But now that they have more adults in the room, we're going to we're going to get that evaluation and we don't need to make that decision now. Yeah, but that, you know, and it's it's going to be a similar story to an extent with Cade Cunningham in Detroit. It's just I am a bigger oh, believer in Cade Cunningham than I am in some of the other ones, though I am not a believer at all in Detroit spacing. So that'll be yeah, an evaluation I'm doing- problem. I'm doing a Cunningham video as soon as we're done recording today because Danny's also going to be on my show. So if you're still listening to this, go listen to Danny and I break down rookie extensions on my show. Um, I watched that entire game and I pulled clips and I'm going to do a Cade video. I mean, the level to which Detroit is... I don't want to say failing like it's hard because I think that's probably too strong, but like they are not making life any easier for Cade. Uh, they played 13 minutes of a lineup last night with Killian Hayes, Asar Thompson, Isaiah Stewart and Jerry Jalen Duran next to Cade. Did you see this tweet that I posted? I did did see your tweet. They posted a 93 offensive rating. I I was joking around. In this economy? 
Yeah, I know, right? I was joking around with James Edwards before the game. I was like, yeah, yeah, they might defend, but they're going to post an 85 offensive rating. Like, they have no, like, they're not going to score against anybody, especially against the Heat, because the Heat are just going to pack the paint against you. They're, they're going to, like, make life miserable for you. And then on top of it, they're going to switch and they're going to get the ball out of Cade's hands. I digress. <laughs> then they put in Alec Burks for Asar late. Do you know what they had in the nine minutes? They played the, you know, what was it? Cade, Killian Hayes, Alec Burks, Isaiah Stewart, uh, Jalen Duran line. I would guess like a 108, 110. It was 158 for nine <laughs> minutes. Oh, nine minutes. But yeah. like, yeah, like super small sample. But the offensive like structure was very clearly better in those moments. So I, I, I just... It's like kind of unfathomable to me that you have Cade Cunningham and you watch this dude play and you know the spots he wants to get to on the court. You know that, like, frankly, he's not the most explosive dude and doesn't always have the ability to, like, get through those tiny creases to get all the way to the rim. Your goal should be spread him out with shooters, let him process the game, let him, like, figure out what's going on in the court and then go from there. Right. So what have they done? They've done the exact opposite of that in the name of defense or whatever. The most important thing they need to figure out is if Kate is the dude this year. I think he is the dude. So like I'm all for it. But you need to know that before you give him like the full max, which is what they're probably gonna have to give him. Well, and before and, you make the decisions they have to make in the draft and free agency and all that moving forward. Correct. So it's just driving me. Yeah, I'm going to do a whole video on it. Like go to the YouTube channel, like Game Theory YouTube channel. It's probably going to be an hour of me like bitching about like their starting lineups and Cade having no space, especially after they went out and got shooters this offseason. Like you can play Joe Harris and Alec Burks. Like that's a real option. I get it. The Boyan and Monty Morris are out right now, but you have shooters to play and you just chose not to play them. You have Isaiah Livers. Uh, Isaiah Livers is hurt right now too. I'm sorry. You can't, you don't have Isaiah Livers, but like you, you have actual shooters. Marcus Sasser is a fantastic shooter. And I thought he was like their second best player last night when he was on the court. <laughs> like I know that Jalen Duran, this is a full fucking rant now, but like I had, like I didn't think Jalen Duran played that well last night. I know he had like 17 and 14 and like a couple of blocks and steals but i thought that like he was like not active defensively and i didn't think that he gave them a ton offensively either he turned the ball over a bunch especially early like i thought isaiah stewart was fine but teams just like don't guard isaiah stewart from the three-point line yet so like that's a real problem it's yeah what watching they looked way better defensively and i liked the fight they showed last night but like the process on offense was is maddening Well, we have a lot more that we can discuss and we have a lot more that we will discuss. So I will thank you for taking the time. Yeah, Danny, uh, thank you. And we'll talk, you know, in five minutes here. (laughs) Thanks again to Sam Pazzini for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can listen to him on the Game Theory podcast, including an appearance by me where we talked about completely different stuff. We did a lot on the rookie scale extensions, which was really fun. Big picture, small picture, deal by deal, and and where the cap is going. I actually gave a little bit of a preview of a piece I'm writing for The Athletic in that. So you can check that out, Game Theory Podcast. He also does uh, it's a YouTube feed and podcast, of course. You can also, of course, if you don't already follow him on social media. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly useful for Real GM Radio because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. You can also help other people find the show by leaving a rating and review, word of mouth, social media, wherever. 
Really do appreciate it. And the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors, FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet, which is fantastic. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, of course going strong. We are the beginning of the season, going five times a week. We're going to do a lot on the in-season tournament as well. You can also... Watch Nate and I. We are bringing back the League Pass NBA strategy stream. We're going to be doing roughly weekly, mostly on Mondays, but there will be some variants where we'll, we'll post calendars and everything like that. But we are going to start the fun game Jazz Nuggets on 9 Eastern, 6 Pacific on Monday. Should be a really fun one. I was actually doing some of my prep shortly before recording this outro. And we'll also be doing playback a fair amount through the year. That may tie with the in-season tournament in the early going. We'll be, we're trying to do a mix, a mix of the two. We love both opportunities, and so we're, we're pursuing that when we have the time to do it. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I've done you know a couple pieces recently, and then I have, I think, two or three more in the writing stages. So those should be coming out, I would say soon, but depends on my available timing. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I get them pretty regularly. I appreciate it all the time. And I try to reply. I, I admit I'm not the greatest at it, but I, I try to. That is my intention at bare minimum, but I always read it. It's something I do. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.